We are chip-chatting, joined by journalist and policy director over at Defending Rights and Dissent, Chip Gibbons, for our weekly chip-chat, where Chip Chip speaks only on his own behalf. Welcome, Chip. I speak on behalf of freedom-loving peoples everywhere. Freedom-loving, the oppressed peoples, everywhere. Plural. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been a while since we talked about snacks and i just wanted to say that uh it's cherry season again the rainier cherries are popping up at the grocery store oh and uh they make a delicious little snack get yourself a bag of cherries they are a little pricey right now those things can be kind of pricey you're eating more fruits and vegetables sam i'm i'm proud of you i'm doing what i can here i'm doing what i can so what are we talking about today chip We are talking about the Joseph Biden administration's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which was uh, recently-ish released. Uh, Joseph Biden on day one declared uh, domestic terrorism to be be a cause for concern and uh, asked for the creation of this national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. This is a bit of a turning point in a way because past hubbubaloos over terrorism, at least at the official level, have generally focused on uh, international terrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, people like that. Uh, And there was this sort of um, concern around some of the far-right violence we've seen that there's been sort of a uh, failure to deal with the issue of domestic terrorism with the same scale we, we've dealt with, with international terrorism. Of course, your chances of being killed by any type of terrorist attack are um, not terribly high in the world. But in terms of types of terrorists, you know, you're, you're far more likely to be killed by a white supremacist than ISIS. You know, so so far as terrorism exists, it is generally domestic, generally from the far right in terms of lethality. Uh, so a lot of those sorts of concerns have prompted uh, the Biden administration to sort of, and along with January 6th, obviously, have prompted the Biden administration and others to make a big show about opposing domestic terrorism um, the domestic terrorism strategies are largely the same failed strategies from international terrorism, uh, but now repackaged for, for domestic terrorism. Um, one interesting thing to note that people may not know about um, is that the FBI divides terrorism in, into these two categories, international and domestic. Uh, but under the category of domestic terror, international terrorism, international terrorism is the category of quote unquote homegrown violent extremism, which sounds very domestic. And what that basically is, is domestic terrorism when carried out by someone who is Muslim, right? The argument is because they are inspired by a foreign ideology, uh, jihadism. They are therefore an international terrorist. Even if they are born in this country, live in this country their whole lives and do not leave ever, right? If they are in one of these sort of, you know, Islamic jihadist type terrorist attacks, they are then 
classified as international terrorism. And of course, if you're dealing with international terrorism as opposed to domestic terrorism, there's a whole bunch of repressive surveillance tools like the, the Patriot Act, the FISA court, and all of these types of things that, that you can then uh, use, whereas you cannot sort of use them against what we label domestic terrorism. So that label matters. Um, but but we have this strategy document, you know, it, it sort of gives four pillars for going after domestic terrorism. Uh, pillar number one is to understand and share domestic terrorism-related information. There's going to be increased uh, sharing between FBI, DOJ, DHS, and local police. Obviously, we already have fusion centers. We already have JTTFs. All of these programs have been disasters, right, from both a civil liberties perspective, also from like a like objectively like countering terrorism perspective, also just disastrous, did not work. I don't know what we're going to do here. We haven't done already. Uh, prevent domestic terrorism, recruitment and mobilization to violence. This is extremely disturbing. This has always been one of the most disturbing aspects of the FBI post 9-11 is where they were very conscious about, you know, we're trying to shift away from investigating criminal activity, which is what I think most people think the FBI does, and sort of using intelligence gathering to prevent crimes from prevent terrorism from happening. And I'm sure a lot of people might be sitting there saying, well, you know, Preventing senseless violence before it occurs. Isn't that good? Don't you wish 9-11 didn't happen? Don't you wish January 6th didn't happen? And it's like, yes, I, I, I do wish those things didn't happen. But, you know, the preventative terrorism strategies um, are largely based on sort of debunked notions that there's a set path to becoming a terrorist. It usually involves adopting the wrong ideas and sort of basically... Um, targeting quote-unquote recruitment materials there's a lot of language in this section about sort of online access to terrorist recruitment materials of course they bring up disinformation uh they mention foreign inspired disinformation there's been a bit of a convergence between the people who are concerned about the russians are putting bad memes on our internet and and uh other types of disinformation. And this really does get into sort of classic uh, First Amendment territory. And it's worth pointing out that the government had a bunch of these programs targeted at Muslim Americans. Uh, the most infamous and the most stupid was the FBI's uh, Don't Be a Puppet Game, which was a uh, computer game for children, which I was always upset by because I could not uh, pass one of the levels, which is where I was a goat and I was trying not to run into these various buildings. And every time I, I successfully didn't run into one of these buildings, I would get a fact about terrorism. And because I could not pass this, this goat game level, I never got my certificate from, from James Comey that I was not a puppet, and it was very hurtful. Um, but they actually removed that level from the game because no one could, could get beyond it was too hard. The, uh, the goat. Too hard, too hard, too hard. And also, I mean... Shouldn't everyone be getting facts from James Comey about what extremist rhetoric sounds like? Not just those who can successfully navigate a goat around like building blocks with their like keyboard. I think so. I think so. Um, we're going to disrupt and deter domestic terrorism activity. This is sort of a more appropriate law enforcement function. But they mentioned they're going to pursue the uh, 
potential for enhanced prosecutions and investigations, which, you know, given the legacy of enhanced interrogation tactics, I don't I don't terribly like the word enhanced in this conduct. Is that is that new? The uh, enhanced language there? I don't know. I I I just wonder like who wrote this because I just I read this to a random person like that sounds like waterboarding. It's like yes, the word enhanced is like permanently enshrined with waterboarding in the American lexicon. If whoever wrote this report had lived in this country sometime during the last twenty years and consumed like counterterrorism related discussions, they would have known. Do not use the word enhanced. Uh, they also discussed the potential for um, new laws. They're they're sort of uh, non-committal on this one, but they're going to decide whether or not they need new domestic terrorism laws. And once again, this is sort of an increased focus on domestic terrorism, whereas most of the sort of scary anti-terrorism laws are pretty limited to international terrorism because, you know, that's supposed to be less likely to involve U.S. citizens, and therefore there's less need for constitutional rights because, you know, bin Laden doesn't have the same right as Sam Sam Sachs or Sam Knight. Uh, but then, of course, we were targeting U.S. persons who were in this country with them, which sort of undermines the essential uh, justification for the diminished constitutional standards. But who am I to, to question what goes on in the minds of our legal experts and counter-terror strategies. And then the final one is uh, confronting long-term contributors to domestic terrorism, which is, it's an interesting section because I, 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 I'm hesitant to say this, but I, I, I think it's true that, that the sort of framing of this report very much has a sort of uh, liberal narrative, one that I agree with. I, I actually sort of agree with, I don't agree with how it's being used, but it very much has this sort of um, liberal narrative. You know, usually when we get these types of reports, domestic terrorism was all animal rights activists, animal rights activists, or the weather underground, or you would see a real focus on international terrorism and Al-Qaeda. And sort of the narrative of this report, the historical narrative is, you know, Clan violence after the Civil War, the Tulsa massacre, Timothy McVeigh, El Paso shooting, January 6th, this report, all of which are terrible and horrible acts of violence that are rooted in white supremacy, one of the most abominable ideologies in, in the history of the world and 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 clearly clearly condemnable. But it's just it's very sort of creepy the way in which they've appropriated that narrative to basically repackage the things that they've been doing that, that don't work, degrade democracy, and are, um, are sort of antithetical to civil liberty. So in the long-term contributors to domestic terrorism, one of the things they're going to do is like reduce racism in America, which is like, great, do that. That's good. And that probably would. You know, If we were less racist, we'd be less violent. I, I, I do agree with that. The other stuff in there is about restoring faith in government and decreasing polarization, which very much comes back to this sort of narrative we saw in the Trump years where it's like, you know, we weren't 
where we have, you know, Russian disinformation or other foreign disinformation or just disinformation on the internet that's that's making people do bad things. And there was really this sort of convergence, you know, some of it coming out of think tanks that get funding from NATO and similar entities of this sort of uh, concern of domestic terrorism along with this sort of Russiagate-type rhetoric. And I, I think that this report or this strategy is is challenging to deal with because I, I do agree with sort of the underlying narrative about, about violence in our society being tied to racism. And yeah, I, I do think there is a straight line between Klan terror and Reconstruction to the Tulsa massacre to, I guess, the Oklahoma City bombing to El Paso to 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 January 6th. I think you can draw those types of connections. Uh, but I, I don't think the solution there is, you know, repackaging the war on terror. And it's it's worth pointing out that, you know, Muslim and Arab American civil rights groups who have been some of who represent some of the communities the hardest hit by the war on terror, as well as the hardest hit by white supremacists and hate crimes, have been telling us for years to anybody who would listen, like we don't want equal opportunity surveillance. We want these programs eliminated. We don't want to turn them against, you know, far right actors. We don't want to have the same type of thought policing deployed against other segments of our society. In part because these programs are inherently racist. And also, if you really do want law enforcement, which I think all of us don't think law enforcement is going to solve the problem of, of racism in this country. And I think most people listening don't think that. But assume for a second you do. Uh, this sort of like pointless thought policing, you know, just distracts away from going after people who are actually engaged in violence. So like some communities that have been very hard hit by the war on terror and have been very hard hit by hate crimes have been telling us this is what we don't want. This is what we don't want. This is what we don't want. And the Biden administration has come out with this report that is exactly that, taking all of the failed strategies that were applied predominantly to Muslim Americans repackaging them in this narrative about how we're all gonna, you know, redeem our nation and eliminate racism and, and we're gonna target the far right and then sell them that way. And, you know, I think it's probably cynical. I mean, these things are usually cynical, but I, I do imagine a lot of good faith people potentially being swept up in this sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's possible for you to have this sort of convergence of of like good faith demands and good faith critiques with bad faith authoritarian ones. Uh, the one I think about the most historically that's worth really worrying about is, you know, I, I think, you know, we all agree now like mandatory minimum sentences are bad. They're symptomatic of the escalation of the war on drugs, the war on crime that have destroyed working class communities, particularly those of color. Um, but sort of the the reaction to indeterminate sentencing, you know, like you would be in prison until someone decided you were, you know, rehabilitated. Uh, had this, there's a number of academics who have written about this, this convergence of, of different groups in it, including prisoner-led prisoner rights groups who resented the fact that these sorts of, you know, technocrats could decide um, when they could or could not be in prison, uh, civil libertarians who pointed out how these sentences were applied unequally and were racist, and then just these hardline 
anti-crime, racist, reactionary groups. And, you know, their vision of the issue won out. And I, I, I do think you can have convergences of, of disparate groups, including well-meaning ones whose policies and agendas I support sort of team up with this sort of darker side of reaction, usually inadvertently or, or sometimes inadvertently. And, and the end result is sort of legitimating this sort of uh, next step of escalation of right-wing repression. And a lot of people have pointed out that the, um, you know, report references anarchist, violent extremist who oppose capitalism, corporate globalization, and I think governing institutions and have sort of been like really strong reactions that on social media, but long-term listeners to this segment and long-term readers of my writings would know, you know, that's not a new definition that's been in use by, that's been in use by the FBI for at least 10, I would say probably 20 years. The anarchist extremism primer on the FBI website is linked to 2010. We see that exact language show up in the predication of the investigation into uh, the ISM, the nonviolent Palestinian solidarity group. So, um, the thing I've been trying to get everyone to care about for the last five years, people suddenly care about, which I'm glad, but it has this very much, can you believe Joe Biden just did this thing thing? It's like, no, 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 no. This is what they've been doing for 20 years. It's very bad. It's very bad. But like something doesn't have to be new to be very bad. Right. I can actually give you examples from the last 20 years showing how this thing is very, very, very bad. Uh, old things, Sam, are sometimes also bad. Well, there is a, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it is ironic that they bring up anarchist violent extremists when um, the subtext of this report is January 6th, which was obviously uh, far right. And I'm not saying that um, we should be surprised by the state invoking anarchist uh, extremism in, in bad faith now. Uh, but there is uh, also a um, huge error by, uh, by omission, which um, in the context of January 6th is, is the fact that there are significant ties between domestic right-wing extreme extremism and law enforcement and military service. So and the report doesn't say that explicitly, but one of the pillars they want is better screening for public employees with access to sensitive information, which is clearly a politically correct way of saying cops are Nazis, right? Uh, political correct in the true sense of the term, not in the like right wing <laughs> outrage sense of the term, but like right that right the section on like public employees with access to uh, sensitive positions need to have better screening to determine if they're in inappropriate extremist movements. It's it's like the politically correct way of saying like, hey, a lot of cops are Nazis, which is like objectively like a threat to like the lives of like. FBI agents, right? You know, Mike German, former FBI agent, uh, now of civil libertarian, like who infiltrated Nazi groups, like talks about how a lot, how like back in the early 90s and when like he was briefed, like, you know, you don't share certain information with the local police because they will give it to the Nazis, right? If you tell them who, and, you know, Gary Rowe in the 60s, 
who was the uh, FBI Ku Klux Klan informant I'm fixated on because his story is just crazy in every level. So it was like reported an imminent act of violence to the FBI. One of the few times he did, they're pulled over by the Alabama state troopers and the state troopers tell him, you've got a snitch in your midst. Like, like kill the snitch. Um, unfortunately, they tell that to the FBI uh, informant. But um, yeah, that that's in there a bit. It seems like there's just no one. I mean, not seems like this is obvious that th- there's no one uh, looking out for for left groups that fall uh, in this sort of dragnet. Because um, I remember, you know, Trump just was it last year was pulling the same stuff, but with anarchists claiming that cities across the country were now under the control of anarchists. And you don't really see, and you didn't really see Democrats at the time push back against that. There were a few who, who, who pushed back, but for the most part, Democrats don't like anarchists either. And Democrats don't aren't out there to defend the rights of socialists and communists either. But here we have a situation and there's a bit of a silver silver lining in the sense that we probably won't see any new legislation come out of Congress in response to January 6th because you have an entire Republican Party that the January 6th issue is such so partisan now that you have a, a Republican Party that will do whatever it takes to make sure that there aren't any new national security measures to go after people on the you, right you you have that i also really do think that amongst um members of congress on the other side including progressive democrats obviously not all of them there is a greater understanding that the war on terror has failed and there's just a lot of i think counterterrorism fatigue I, I i don't think it has the same salience it had in 2001 i don't think it has the same salience it had in 1996 when Clinton passed the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And I think there's just a lot of awareness. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of idiots in Congress, right? But I, I think there's enough of a combination between, like, people on the left who know these are failed policies that do not work and expanding them is never a good idea, who are a minority, but coupled with sort of partisan Republicans who view this as an attack on their base of you know nazis who stormed capitals and then sort of you know more libertarian republicans all two of them um maybe there's three now maybe there's only one i, I don't know but you know the, the two the two actual libertarians who we have to spend a lot of time caring about right i think like those three groups together are enough of a block to um prevent anything stupid from happening too stupid for stupid things are obviously happening right um, but, um, I, I, I think, I don't think it's just, you know, partisan Republicans are blocking new domestic terrorism legislation. I, I think that's part of it. I think there's other aspects of the story, including just counterterrorism fatigue and an acute awareness of how, like, much of a failure the last 25 years have been. Well, I'm pretty sure if, if January 6th would have been, you know, Muslims, <laughs> Uh, storming Congress, you probably would have 
seen the that block appetite. would have broken down because you would you would you would not have had the racist Republican part of it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I very distinctively said which is a pretty groups. significant chunk of the Republican Party uh, right now. But it it, it, it it chunk, but I don't I don't know if any one of those three groups on their own could have blocked. Well, the Senate perhaps is the filibuster, but I I I don't I think the sort of always want more security measure Republicans with the entire Democratic caucus could have pushed that over the edge. You have the sort of defection of racist Republicans who previously supported these national security measures who now don't, the one to three libertarians, and then the progressive to just rational, not the progressives aren't rational, but like center, but like not going along with it part of the Democratic Party who is just like recognizing that laws against terrorism are not what the country wants or needs in 2021. I think you have three distinctive blocks here that have converged into a temporary uh, blocking of a new domestic terrorism law, which you're probably going to see some type of federal law dealing with domestic terrorism, but it's not going to probably create a new domestic terrorism charge, which are distinctive, distinctive things and hotly debated within civil rights groups. So not, not to, uh, not to try to pull the uh, nihilist card and say that nothing matters per se, but um, there might be a majority blocking um, an anti-terror law, but, how is that negated or washed out by the fact that there is almost certainly a majority uh, for upping whatever funding uh, federal law enforcement? Absolutely. Federal law enforcement is going to continuously get more and more funding until the end of time, along with the U.S. military. Um, and you know, it, It's really worth pointing out that, you know, one of the points that that we we make is that you know an anti-terrorism new anti-terrorism law is not needed because they have such expansive powers to go against quote unquote terrorism already. Um right, they're spying on Occupy, they're spying on Quakers, they're spying on Muslims, right? Like they, they have no shortage of of anti-terrorism powers. So like, you know, it's I don't want to say a new law doesn't matter, but it's it's hard to imagine how much more investigatory freedom the FBI could get. Right. I mean, we're already in such a terrible situation where the FBI operates under the loosest guidelines they've ever had since, since the church committee, right? The FBI can open a type of investigation called an assessment where they can go through your trash, Sam Knight, they can search your trash. They can conduct physical surveillance of you. They can send an infiltrator and informant to the district sentinel studios. They can attend your, um, do you, you don't do the live podcast anymore because of COVID, but they could send, uh, a member to that without any factual. Probably have. Perhaps. I, think, I, I think they were the one who walked out of our show that one time. Well, that's a very bad FBI agent. If they walked out of the show, right. I mean, I'm not, they just I'm couldn't, not no, for this they did, shit. they, they just yeah they couldn't handle they couldn't handle the truth so they had to walk out of there before they defected. They were they were about to go to the 16th Street uh, Cuban embassy and be like you know what I've had some powerful brain shit happen and uh, I'm defecting. 
Every time I've seen Michael Moore speak, he's made the same variation of the same joke, being like, hey, undercover infiltrators uh, and the audience, <laughs> your friends are at home drinking beer and watching basketball. And you're stuck here with us. And I actually I actually do feel sorry for the cops when he says that. It's like, you know, you're stuck here with the Baba Vakian people and your friends are watching basketball. And it's like, <laughs> oof. Imagine getting that assignment, right? You know, infiltrating Baba Vakian networks during, during basketball season if you're a cop. It's rough. It'd be bad, yeah. No. Some, someone should take away their uh, their funding to do that boring work. I'll take away their funding. You know, I'm fine with that. Chip Gibbons, follow him on Twitter at ChipGibbons89. And tune in every week here on District Sentinel Radio for Chip Chat. Got nowhere to go. I'm trapped here in the studio. They're holding me hostage. <laughs> <laughs>